Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back to yet another exciting episode of Lip Service. On today's show, the incomparable, amazing fashion designer, Tommy Hilfiger. Truth be told, we live in trying times. I actually did this interview about a week ago. Fortunately, the power went out in all of Hollywood. I took all my stuff to a friend's place. We couldn't get in and out of the Zoom. And before you know it, something happened. So Tommy is such a mensch that we're doing this again. I really appreciate it. What a great guy. I think you guys will be stoked about this interview. It's super exciting to have him on. He's built a multi-billion dollar business in Tommy Hilfiger, about 35 years into his business. So coming up in just a moment, Tommy Hilfiger. And now stay tuned for a word from Thursday's Boots. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. And more, more importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, Tommy, how are you? Okay, how are you? Great, great to see you again. And by the way, you're such a mensch for doing this again. I really appreciate it. You have so many technical difficulties in the, in the COVID era, and uh, we had a little snafu last time. I'm happy to have you back. I so appreciate it. It's great to see you. Where are you again? You're in Florida? I'm in Palm Beach. Palm Beach, amazing, amazing. So the truth is your story is an incredible one and your journey is an incredible one. I've known you for many, many years, actually via your brother, who I love, Andy Hilfiger, and also Michael, your adopted brother. And we have a lot <laughs> of history. <laughs> love Michael, love Michael. And one of my favorite, I have so many stories we have to get into and your path and your journey especially is what I wanna talk about. But I do recall even taking a tour of your office with you like many years ago. And we were touring around and you knew everyone's name in the building, which always amazed me because I said to you, Tommy, how many people work here? And you said about 1,500. And I said, you know everyone's name? 
And he said, yeah. And I said, I don't even know, like, I can't remember like the 35 people that are working with me if they're new sometimes, but that amazed me. And that just shows you the incredible charm you have. But let's take it back to the beginning um, at 17, right? Let's, let's kind of get back. You grew up in upstate New York. That's right. Uh, I had a dream. I wanted to open my own business. And I became very successful right off the bat because I opened a shop in my hometown of Elmira, New York with really cool clothes you could not find in upstate New York. And I sort of taught myself how to run the business and how to manage the business after some, I would say, starts and stops and obstacles. Uh, I had a couple of business partners. One was only there for six months and then left for Canada. The other remained with me for uh, over 10 years. But then I started my own brand. And it was my always my dream to start my own brand. And I just had to figure out a way to get there. So... Because uh, initially you loved music and a lot of this was connected to your love for the Stones and the Beatles and the hippie movement that was happening in like the early 70s, right? That's kind of where people's plays started by your love of music, I would imagine, right? Yes, and there was a fashion revolution taking place in the late 60s and 1969 is when we opened, but that was the year of Woodstock. And when the Vietnam protests were going on, there was a major fashion music revolution taking place that nobody had ever seen before. And so it was one of those things where you love the way all the bands dress, right? You love the Stones, as I said, Hendrix, the Beatles, and you were like, let me emulate what's happening here. But you had never designed before. You didn't go to school for designing. And People's Place, actually, one of my favorite stories about you kind of came about because you saved money from working at a gas station. So walk me back a little bit to the early beginnings okay. <laughs> of Tommy Hilviger and really how you started, because that's such a fascinating story to 35 years now and 2000 stores, right? Okay, so I was working nights in a gas station when I was a teen and uh, saving money so I could have my own car. And uh, when I started becoming aware of all these rock musicians, I, I really tried to play because I wanted to play guitar. I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to form a band, but I, I was not musically inclined at all. So I gave my brother Andy my guitar I, brought, I bought my brother Billy a guitar and they picked up the guitars and just started playing. And they then formed a, a band and then additional bands, other bands down the road. But, uh, and you, got, you guys have all played together. So of you course, know. yeah. But I, I, I really was not musically inclined. So I did like the way the bands looked. I loved the way the, the, the rock stars coming from England and coming from California looked, and I wanted to look like them. So I looked the part and all my friends in high school wanted to know where I got my bell bottoms, where'd you get your fringe vest? Where did you get your cool boots? And I would drive my Volkswagen Beetle to St. Mark's Place or Second Avenue and, and uh, in the Bowery and buy like cool clothes off the streets, bring them back to my schoolyard, sold them to my friends, and then finally opened a, a store called People's Place. Were you going to early on in the 70s, were you visiting places like Trash and Vaudeville that sold oh, yeah. a lot of the rock and roll clothing? And was that like but an that, inspiration for you? 
it was a big inspiration. But Trash and Vaudeville at that time was called Limbo. And at any given time, you would see uh, Bowie or the Stones or uh, uh, Lou Reed or the New York Dolls. I mean, you would see all sorts of different groups shopping in, lim in Limbo. And then the, the owners of Limbo sold it to some guys who changed the name to Trash and Vaudeville, but it was the same premise, very cool clothes. It became very punk with Trash and Vaudeville. But then there was a store around the corner called Naked Grape. And I remember uh, I was across the street in front of the Fillmore East one day when a big white limo pulled up in front of Naked Grape and out comes Robert Plant Amazing. And, and Led Zeppelin buying like really cool clothes from the naked grape. Amazing. So you never really designed before and you're seeing this need and this necessity for the kind of clothes that you love. Obviously the love of music really inspired you, but because you never went to design school and you never really knew how to do this, what was sort of the impetus that kind of got you into this because you didn't have a place to start. So how did that begin for you? I knew if I uh, would sketch something that could at least be somewhat understandable. I could get somebody to make whatever I was sketching. So I found seamstresses, women in the neighborhood who had sewing machines and I bought denim at uh, a discount fabric shop. And I gave them the denim and I gave them the thread and I gave them the sketches and they made the samples. And I put the samples into my stores and found out that people really loved what they were what I was showing. So I thought, okay, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. So I uh, had a bankruptcy and when I was 23, because I didn't really know how to run the business, uh, got back on my feet, uh, taught myself the business part of the business, and then set out to uh, move to New York, work for some people to learn the trade, learn how to manufacture, and then I uh, started to plant seeds to open my own brand. It's probably surprising for people to know initially you were taking your jeans and trying to sell them to Macy's and Dillard's and even yeah. you were getting turned down, right? Which is incredible when you think about the success you've had at this point. So what was sort of going through your head at that point when you brought your jeans into those big, you know, those big retailers and they weren't actually buying your jeans? Were you like, I'm on to something or I need to kind of reconfigure what I'm doing here? Um, never give up. And uh, that's always been my motto is to, to never give up. And if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And if they don't like the, uh, the, the fringe and the studs and the rivets and the pockets, change them. So I kept adjusting and uh, fine tuning and making things better. Every time I would make a new pair of jeans or a new, new design, I would always make it better than, than the previous. And then they, when I opened Tommy Hilfiger, everything took off. So you're getting some, you're starting to open Tommy Hilfiger, but even pre that, Tommy, you worked at Jordache for yeah. a quick stint, right? Learned, and another, learned a another, lot. Yeah, another crazy stint, you actually got fired, I think, from yeah. there, right? Which yeah. I'm sure they regretted that years later. But um, along the way, you know, I know Calvin approached you to work with him. So talk to me about that period right before you started your brand and, and kind of what you learned kind of working up towards that. Well, I was sort of in the middle of the uh, the garment center in the in the fashion world, uh, freelancing for different people, working with different people, 
And uh, I had been uh, working for Jordash. I learned a lot. They fired me. They said, we don't need a gene designer. We've got one gene that's working. We don't need others. And uh, then I started a small company. Uh, I started the company Tommy Hill. And then I found out people had already registered the name, so I couldn't do that. So then I started a company called 20th Century Survival, and it was really, really very cool camo military uh but with uh pirate uh swashbuckler blouses and and shirts with big sleeves opened a store on 708 broadway <laughs> down near um fourth street and that was before that area was really happening but uh that was one of my first stores in new york city and then uh, I started a company called ClickPoint with uh, another guy, and that was like really sort of uh, more modern looking, looking clothes. But I was never really happy doing that because I really wanted to design my own look that was only mine. And when I met Marjani, who owned Gloria Vanderbilt Jeans at the time, uh, I had just uh, been offered a job with Calvin Klein and I thought okay this is cool I'm going to learn from Calvin and uh, the next day I actually met Marjani and Marjani said no let's start Tommy Hilfiger brand and what do you so, think Marjani uh, saw in you because obviously you hadn't had a proven track record at that point right you were designing for other people you had your own stores but initially you guys met to my knowledge of the story and you just kind of clicked right away and he invested money in you well I had met his family in Hong Kong and his family kept trying to connect me with him. Uh, I wanted to design a ward in, in New York for my ClickPoint brand. And uh, then the Marjani's head of uh, his president called me and wanted to get me into to spend some time with Mohan. So when I met Mohan, he said, why don't we start, start Tommy Hilfiger? We'll do it, do it on our own. And I said, great, what, what do you want me to start? He said, why don't you just design what you want to wear? And I said, I, I love that. So I started designing what I wanted to wear, which was no longer the hippie wear, no longer like 80s type wear, but I wanted to go back to my sort of preppy roots, but make preppy cool. So I redesigned all of the preppy stuff that we all know, button-down shirts, polo shirts, chino pants, but I redesigned it so it was like very relaxed, oversized, cool, detailed, colorful, and then it really caught on. Now, did you see part of the marketplace clothes like that weren't in existence? So you felt no. like there's definitely a necessity for these kind of clothes because to my knowledge, I don't see these kind of clothes. I mean, Ralph was doing his thing and Calvin was doing his thing and you have Perry Ellis, but maybe those type of clothes, the, the preppy kind of clothes that you initially started, that, that wasn't really prevalent, right? Is that kind of what you saw? Well, there were preppy clothes, but they were really boring. They were what you would expect. Yeah. Like, very like normal. Brooks Brothers or... Yeah. And, and yeah. the fit was, you know, not a, not a cool fit. So I made everything oversized. I washed everything to get rid of the chemicals. I detailed it. And uh, it took off. I mean, young people loved it because it was sort of anti-establishment. 
it was like clothes that you know your parents would not wear and uh then i started evolving it to make it more sporty more red white and blue with bigger logos and then the hip-hop crowd embraced it and one of my favorite stories we, we talked about this last time but the billboard the hangman campaign one of the greatest advertising stories ever as far as i'm concerned just talk about how that happened your first major campaign and the leap of faith that you guys took and and how it actually worked really well for you well uh I was thinking about doing an ad campaign in the Hamptons with a great looking model on the beach with the wind blowing and the shirt untucked and, you know, sand in the background. And Marjani introduced me to this guy, George Lois, uh, an advertising genius who really wasn't in fashion. He advertised for, did advertising for automobile companies and restaurants and uh, casinos. I mean, all sorts of different things. Uh, a real, you know, famous guy, but real old ad guy. And so I told him what I was thinking of doing. He said, that's, he said, just, he said, it'll take you 20 years and millions of dollars to even get noticed. And he said, what, what are you doing? He said, you, you, you're wasting, you're going to waste your time and money. And I said, well, what would you do? And he said, well, give me a day or two and I'll come back and show you. So a day or two, he came back with these boards and he had uh, ads of, uh, Calvin, Ralph, Armani, Periellis, Halston, all these designers at the time, took the names off the ads. And he said, now tell me whose ad is whose. And you really couldn't tell because they all looked alike. They were all shot It was, shot it was Bruce Weber shooting all of them and it was- Yeah, Bruce Weber, yeah. black and white. A lot of them had horses in them. Right. Same kind of models, same hairstyle, same everything. And I said, well, so, okay, what would you do? And he brought up another board and the other board basically said, uh, they compared me to the design greats in America and basically said that I'm, I'm the next. And I said, you can't do that. that that's, yeah, I mean, how could you put somebody else's name on a billboard with mine? He said, no, it's, it's legal. You can do it. You can compare yourself to anybody. And uh, uh, I, I hemmed and hawed and I, I did not feel good about doing it, but then my partner, Joel Horowitz and Marjani said, let's try it. Let's just try it. So we put a billboard up in Times Square, uh, put some ads on some phone booths and the industry went crazy. And people in New York, especially went crazy. So who is this? Who does he think he is? He's an unknown comparing himself to Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, <laughs> Harry Ellis and me. And, uh, uh, the, the George Lois, the ad guy said, look, at least they're going to come look at your clothes. And people started going to my Columbus Avenue store, looking at the clothes and actually buying the clothes. So then we had shops in Bloomingdale's and Saks and Macy's and all over. And the business took off. Because essentially it was like that old hangman game, right? Where it was like fill in the blanks. And it's like, who's yeah. the other great designer? And it was your name and, and it was a risk, but in the end, you know, sometimes if you take big risks like that, they really pay off. So it's, a, what, a, what an incredible story. And at a certain point, I think Marjani, I believe it was Marjani who said, I also have this other brand for Coca-Cola. I have the license. I actually want you to design the clothes. And at that point, I don't know how well the relationship was going with him, but were you thinking this is a great idea or this is a terrible idea? Look, I really wanted to focus on Tommy Hilfiger, but he was supporting me, backing me. And I said, 
okay, well, I'll, I'll give it a try. But I, I mean, what am I going to do? Red, red and white t-shirts to say Coca-Cola or, <laughs> right. or something like that. So I started thinking and thinking and thinking. I was thinking, why don't I just design very cool clothes and then add the Coca-Cola name? So we, we designed all these very cool clothes, streetwear. And Tommy Hilfiger was evolving into streetwear. Hoodies, sweats, sweatsuits, uh, big oversized uh, uh, bomber jackets, rugbies, and it took off. It was explosive. And you were really tapping into the the, the hip hop community at that point, right? Because the oversized, yeah. the jerseys and the oversized jackets, that big became logos. really synonymous. Really, really big logos. And uh, I remember when I first started showing Bloomingdale's the big logos. The buyer said, nobody's going to wear that. Nobody will ever buy a big logo. And then I said, look, I have this one rugby shirt with a huge logo. I said, could you put that into the Tommy Hilfiger corner in the store, put it on a mannequin. So that's at least like the sign in the store. Right. So they put it on a mannequin. They put it up on top of the shelving unit. And everybody wanted to buy that rugby. Amazing. Everybody wanted to buy that rugby. The day it landed in the store and also the day after, or the, the, the day after Snoop Dogg wore that shirt on SNL. And then it just exploded people everywhere. Went, people went crazy. And that was, you know, like $150 rugby shirt. Definitely. In those days, you could get a rugby for... $49, but because it had all the embroideries and patches and everything over it, it was much more expensive and Bloomingdale's didn't even want to buy it, but I convinced them to at least use it for the signage in the store. So at that point, you know, the business is going great and uh, it's like early nineties and you decide to take the company public, right? So again, walk me through kind of how that worked out for you, because again, I think the first designer to ever go public yeah. on the New York Stock Exchange. So that also was a big risk. And I imagine you had an incredible amount of pressure to produce and always evolve. And so that yeah. was another first view too. You're always like innovating. So walk me through that process. Well, uh, Marjani ran into some financial problems and I met another guy by the name of Silas Chow from China who owned factories. And he and his partner, Lawrence Stroll also owned Ralph Lauren in Europe. So they sold their biz the, the Ralph Lauren license back to Ralph Lauren. And they became my partners. And within a very short amount of time, Silas came and said, we should go public. We should go public. Was, we could raise a lot of money and we could expand the business greatly. So we filed for the IPO, public offering, and we went public and the stock went crazy. Then we started growing the business by leaps and bounds. And uh, we kept pushing the business to keep the stock price up. And then we found that we had over-distributed because everybody on every street corner was wearing the name. And then there was a pushback from a lot of the customers because it was being counterfeited all over. Mm. Uh, it was being worn. I mean, every place you, you would look, you'd see the Hilfiger logo. And a lot of people didn't want that. And even the high schools, people thought, oh, you know, 
when I started wearing it or when they started wearing it, it was cool. Right. But then when everybody in the school started wearing it, it wasn't cool. So there's a pushback and a slowdown in the business. Yeah, you couldn't walk along Canal Street without seeing rip off Tommy Hilfiger jerseys everywhere back then. Everything, the fragrance, yeah. the sneakers, yeah. the socks, the underwear, everything. Yeah. So there was a real uh, slowdown in the business. And uh, then we took the company private. Uh, when we took the company private, we had a uh, private equity partner, Apex. And then we started cleaning up the distribution. But what was happening is that the brand in Europe was doing really, really well. So we took a page out of uh, the Tommy Hilfiger Europe book and made more sophisticated, higher quality slightly more expensive, better fitting clothes without the big logos and the business stabilized. Because Silas then, was really pushing for you guys to grow completely global at that point, right? Yes, yeah. But we all, I mean, we were all excited about that. And we were going global, but uh, the globalization helped save the business because of Europe and Asia, South America, it was growing very fast and very, very, in a very solid way. So we had uh, trouble in the US, but then we got the US business fixed and then the entire business was fixed and we sold it to PVH for three and a half billion. Amazing. And along the way, I always love the quote that Silas said to you. He says, Tommy, you want to be a small part of an elephant or a large part of a piggy? <laughs> and I guess at that point, you knew that you were like aligned with him because you really decided let's take a leap of faith with this partner too, right? That's right, yeah. And along the way, you work with so many great people, Tommy. Obviously, I mean, back in the day, even Pete Townsend, um, from Pete Townsend to this day, you know, not long ago, we did the Gigi collaboration. You did Lewis Hamilton, J-Lo, Beyonce, Zendaya, Aaliyah. What was like your favorite collaboration along the way? Because so many iconic collaborations. And I, I think I mentioned to you last time, the Gigi fashion show you did in LA was by far the best fashion show I've seen probably in my history of being in the fashion business 27 <laughs> years. And I literally moved to LA because I saw, as, as you can probably attest to, the most amazing celebrities, social media stars, models. It was a carnival that you built. Fergie was performing. And I said to myself, I need to be in LA. If this is what's going on out here, this is indicative of a place that I need to be at. So you did the right thing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, look. I think when we did the shoot with uh, David Bowie and Iman, it was epic because we had fashion royalty and music royalty and they'd never done an ad together and they'd never done, yeah, they'd never done anything commercial together. So that was a turning point. Um, I think the uh, Stone sponsorship was, was a lot of fun, was great, but Gigi really, was a turning point because when we, when we brought her in, we brought her in not only as the face of a brand, uh, of the brand, but we gave her the opportunity to design whatever she wanted to design. And she wasn't, you know, she was a model, not, not a designer. Yeah. She'd never thought about designing before. So, but, but Gigi, what would you like to wear? What colors do you like? What fabrics do you like? What shapes do you like? And then we surrounded her with my sister, Ginny, and a whole design team. And uh, she basically uh, molded and shaped the Gigi Tommy line. 
Interesting. You know, it's such a it's such a success. I want to walk back for one second. You know, I worked with Amon Tommy for many, many years. I want to say 15, 17 years. And I could never even approach the idea of David and Amon doing things together. So how did you get them to actually do something together? Because to to my, I don't actually think I can recall a time other than your campaign when they really did something together and they shot. I never could even broach the subject. It was like off limits. Yeah, they were never interested. But uh, David and I became friendly in Mystique. Uh, Iman and I always got along really well. And I floated the balloon. I said, you know, would you guys like to do it? And by the way, it's for a new H collection, which is more sophisticated, higher end. And I'll let you choose the photographer of your choice, Ellen Van Homworth they chose, and location of your choice. So we shot them in Amsterdam in the Amstel Hotel on a staircase that uh, was the same staircase David had been photographed on during his Ziggy Stardust 1972 tour. Amazing. So that, that was really cool. And then we shot them at Mr. Chow's restaurant in New York. Incredible. And it was, I mean, the, the, the photos were epic. Yeah, I only got to meet David once with Amon, and I think she gave me 45 seconds with him. So I didn't really, uh, I never got to know him. It's, it's probably the one guy I wish I spent more time with, a huge fan. But any great stories about Bowie that you remember just being friends with him and spending time with him? Well, I remember uh, uh, he was afraid of, of, of flying. He wasn't a fan of, of flying. And we flew private from New York down to Mystique together four and a half hours. So we sat on the plane for four and a half hours just talking. Amazing. And, uh, you know, I, you know, we talked about his past. We talked about his love for art. We talked about his uh, interest in the internet. But one thing I remember was that I asked him uh, about where his music was going in the future. And he said he wanted to go into a studio with musicians he'd never met before and just start playing. And what record and was that? It, it never it never came up, but that oh. was one of his dreams that he never really fulfilled because uh, every time he went to the studio, it was sort of planned and yeah. what they were going to play. But that was one of his dreams that he'd never, he never got around to fulfilling. But, you know, we talked about his costumes, like from uh, Spiders from Mars, Moto, yeah, yeah. Spider and uh, his days living in New York in the early, early days in the 70s, then his days living in London in the 70s. It was really, I mean, it was a great experience because it was coming from the horse's mouth, so to speak, not yeah. from a writer who may have written it or. Yeah, incredible. You also have that relationship with Mick Jagger, I believe, too, right? Because you guys are sort of vacationing together, and I feel like you guys have a lot of a lot of camaraderie there, too, even with Mick. Yeah, Mick doesn't really like to talk about the past too much. Yeah, but uh, sometimes you can you can get him to talk about it a bit, but and not like David. David went way back. Incredible. And, uh, you know his descriptions of some of the concerts and some of the things were very very lucid and clear mick would rather talk about present and future 
So incredible. So walk me through uh, 35 years in business. It's incredible. About 2,000 stores. By the way, congratulations. Last year was the 35th anniversary, which is amazing. Thank and you. you've accomplished so much. I mean, TV shows, books, obviously the incredible line that you built over the years. Is there anything left that you haven't done that you still really want to accomplish? Um, working on uh, developing my own video game. Um, working on sort of the digital digital virtual world um, into health and wellness products. Um, I was I've been toying with a hotel hospitality idea, but um, I want to do a lot a lot more. I mean, I think it's fun to do new projects. Yeah, it's incredible. So your best memory through all these years in building your brand, would you say, is out of all the things that you've done? What would that be for you? Because obviously, as I mentioned, so many great accomplishments. Is it the book? Is it the TV shows you've done? Obviously, the line you built over the years. But what kind of sticks out in your head is like, this is my pinnacle. I mean, there's so much. You know, the very beginning was really exciting and interesting because I did everything. I, I remember when we would drive to New York and load up uh, the car with cool clothes and bring them back to our little basement boutique and put the clothes out on you know display or on hangers I mean I can still smell the incense in the store I could still hear the music playing from you know the doors to the Grateful Dead <laughs> with people coming into my shop loving all of this cool stuff that they'd never seen before and uh, you know I think Starting out was one of my favorite times, but then along the way, there's so many stories and so many things that <laughs> so are going on. Yeah. And my favorite last story I want to ask you about, because we talked about it last time again, but again, like years ago, and I don't remember what year it was. At some point when I was in New York, Guns N' Roses was playing a small club. You were there. You and Axel sort of got into it. The next day it was the cover of the New York Post, like Tommy and Axel Rose fist fight. I was there, but I didn't see that happened. And I remember just asking Andy or whoever, like, what happened? And, and hearing you tell that story is so great. So we're, we're uh, sitting on a banquette and uh, there are a bunch of models, a bunch of girls around. And he, uh, Axel got real pushy. You know, he really wanted to be, he was very, being very aggressive and physical. And I said, hey, cool it. And he said, you. And I said, no. <laughs> Yeah, what are you talking about? Just, you know, act, you know, act like a gentleman. Right. And he pulled his fist back and he had a ring about the size of, I don't know, uh, an apple. <laughs> and I thought, if he smacks me, I'm dead. So I swung at him first. And his bodyguard grabbed him. My bodyguard grabbed me, <laughs> split it up. Broke, it broke up the, the whole thing. Uh, Do you think he recognized he wanted, you? I mean, because why would he want to start a fight with you? He didn't. He didn't recognize me. I didn't. Re yeah. I didn't recognize him right. because he, his hair had been put into dreads, and yeah. I, I, you know, I I'd met him years prior, but I don't think he recognized me. I didn't recognize him. It was dark. It was you know. It was crowded. Anyway, uh, long story short we made up and he played for the opening of my Beverly Hills store. Amazing. It's incredible. 
Oh, hey, man, thank you so much for coming on, Tommy. It's been a pleasure. Your story okay, is such uh, an inspiring one. You. Great to see you too. I hope to see you in person when he's here. He's coming up, maybe with your brother. Yeah, we'll have to do. When you come out to LA, for sure, give me a call. Great. Look Thanks forward again. to it. I appreciate it. Thanks. See you bye soon. Bye-bye. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. So there you have it, guys. Mr. Tommy Hilfiger. He's built a multi-billion dollar business. It's crazy. And he was such a great guy to come back on the show after those technical difficulties we had when the show actually didn't record the first time. So what an incredible guy. So appreciative. By the way, if you like the show, please rate the show, review the show, tell a friend, tell 10 friends. Five stars on iTunes would be great, would be much appreciated. Hope you guys have a great week and we'll see you again next time. Thanks again. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.